Well, if you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 as we continue this uh, fall series that we're focusing on called Snapshots, where we're kind of walking through one of the Gospels. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, there are four books in the New Testament in the beginning of uh, the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them recount uh, kind of the life and times of Jesus. Um, and we chose Mark because it is kind of, it's, it is the earliest of the Gospels, the earliest written, but it's also kind of the, the rawest. It, it's the, the unedited version kind of of Jesus' life. It's just full of these snapshots, these pictures of what Jesus did and why he did it. Uh, it reminds me sometimes, you know, we love, we're, probably everybody in here is on social media in some way, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, you're at least familiar with it. And, you know, used to, um, you could... We talked about it a couple weeks ago. You'd go get pictures made, and you had to go get them developed, and you would come back, and you'd be like, oh, my gosh, I look horrible in this picture. Nobody is ever going to see this picture, right? You would burn it. You would throw it away, and you would, like, pick the good ones. Now we only publish the really good pictures of us, not even the adequate ones. Like, it have to be, like, they used to do this thing called glamour shots, you know? Like, now they have apps and stuff like that that, like, glamour shot for for you just by, st- you know, I can smile at the, the camera and all of a sudden I have this beautiful, you know, face headshot that I can publish and everybody thinks I'm beautiful and great. And, and then we see people in real life and we're like, that's you? That's really you? Like, you know, that's not quite what you look like in your, uh, in your profile. But what we're seeing here is kind of this raw, unedited, no filter version of Jesus's life. And I love it because we're getting to know who he is and what he is truly about. In chapter 1, Mark did a phenomenal job of laying down the groundwork for this uniqueness of Jesus. That he wasn't just a good man, a good teacher who came and did some good things. He was actually very distinct because he was divine and destined to bring salvation to all mankind. I mean, we learned that just a few verses in, that everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody's writing about Jesus. Everybody is still talking and writing about Jesus because he is distinct. There's something unique about him. But last week, we started to understand a little bit better some of Jesus's intentions. Like, what was he actually coming to do? And in chapter 2, we really understood that he wasn't coming to set up some new moral code, to to begin some new religious system, or to, to do these kind of things. He was actually instead coming to bring hope through spiritual restoration, not just physical healing. He was coming to bring compassion through personal investments in people's lives, not just through increasing his social Status And he was here to show and demonstrate true devotion, devotion by showing how faith impacts us every day of our lives, not just in some religious traditions. He was very clear about his intentions. And today, as we move into the next chapter of Mark, Jesus starts living out these intentions with force. And he does so as he comes up against some pretty strong social forces that try to derail him. The word I want to use to describe Jesus this morning is the word that I don't know that we typically associate this with him, but it is audacity. Because Jesus approached his culture and his day and his mission with an audacious spirit. That he wasn't really concerned about what was, he was concerned about what should be, what the right thing is. It was the audacity of Jesus that allows him to face each of these forces head on and not just stand up to them, but to begin to push back against them in a way that truth would be revealed. Sometimes we think it's our job just to stand up against the forces of evil. 
And as long as I can maintain and, and hold out and not get overwhelmed, I'm going to stand up. That's what we should do. But Jesus shows us a model here of not just being willing to stand, but actually push forward and to push back and reveal truth. I remember growing up, my, my parents uh, had a silver set like in a china cabinet. We weren't allowed to touch it. We never ate out of it. I never saw any piece of food ever touch any of these dishes, but they were on display in this beautiful china cabinet. And about once or twice a year, my mom would open up the china cabinet doors, pull the silver out because it had gotten tarnished. And uh, it was starting to look brown instead of silver. And she had this special stuff that she would use. I, just, I don't know what it was, but I could still, I remember I, would, I was fascinated by this. I would sit and watch, she'd create this tub of like hot water and put this special solution in there. And she would take this silver and like dip it in and it was all tarnished and it would come out. It was beautiful. It was like back to silver. And I was like, what else can we put in there? Like, what else? And uh, like, what do you know? I have some dirty toys. Does that work in there? And it did it. But, uh, but it's this idea that, you know, it's not just enough to try to get through this world without becoming too tarnished. What Jesus wants to do is to peel back and reveal the beauty of how we were originally designed to be. How he dreamed for our lives to be lived. How he wanted the body of the fellowship of the faith to actually operate and work together. Not just to be able to stand up to it, but to walk in it and push back against the things that were tarnishing it. And this is what he begins to do in chapter 3. Chapter, when chapter 2 ended, Jesus and the religious leaders were talking about how he and his disciples weren't living up to social certain standards. All right, and that they would, uh, how they were like fasting the way they were supposed to, or they weren't observing the Sabbath like they were supposed to. And they were kind of having debate, a war of words, a philosophical tug of war. And I want you to understand, this wouldn't necessarily have been that out of place. It wouldn't necessarily have been a new thing in that day. Then that religious culture, then in our religious culture now, we're constantly debating topics and shifting stances on certain issues. The idea that Jesus would debate these issues with the religious leaders was not shocking or cultural shifting. I mean, you just think about it. In the time that I could think back that I've been actively engaged in the religious environment here in the United States, like I can go back and tell you like almost decade by decade some of the, the, bat, the battles and divisions we've had. In 1980, it was the development of the, what's known as the conservative resurgence. It was conservative versus liberal, and it was this battle back and forth about the view of God's word. And then in the 1990s, they had these things called the worship wars. Like, do we worship this or do we worship this way? Is this applicable or, or is this appropriate or is this not? In 2000, I remember the battle between an attractional model of church or like, we'll do anything we can just to get people to show up or a missional model of church, which is like, no, we just be about these few simple things and, and that's it. And it was battle back and forth. Now in the 2010, there's a big conversation about Calvinism versus Arminianism and how all this plays out in our life and our experience. We've been doing this every decade for history. This is not new. Them debating how you should fast or whether you should observe the Sabbath, that was not the shocking thing. Sometimes we can think that we are living culturally distinct lives just because we're willing to debate issues, speak our mind regarding certain topics, or make long posts on Facebook about issues that we're passionate about. And we think we're standing up, and maybe we are standing up, but we're still not pushing back the way that Jesus did. We'll post links to articles that back up our view. We'll read books that affirm our stances and attend events that embody our beliefs. 
But I want you to hear this this morning. Living a culturally distinct, audacious life, a life that pushes back on unhealthy cultural norms is about so much more than just debates, research, and pepper hollies. It is what we are going to see Jesus do in chapter 3. How he very quickly just didn't talk about bringing hope. How he didn't talk about being compassionate, about being devoted. He actually began to live them out in some of the hardest situations. You see, it's one thing to say that you want to spread hope to other people's lives, but it's yet quite another to be willing to be the source of that hope in their lives through sacrifice and investment. You see, it's one thing to talk about the value of compassion and caring for those in need, but yet it's a very unique, different thing to open up your heart, open up your head, and even open up your home to people that are different than you or even sometimes live in opposition to you. You see, it's one thing to say that you are devoted to something because you're committed to going to a church service or to give money or to go to Bible studies or whatever other church activities we can fill our time with. It is yet something very different to actually go and live out our beliefs by intentionally putting ourselves in places where we are the minority or or we are the only representation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Instead of wanting the culture to create a safe place for us to practice our faith, living out this kind of devotion means that we actually go to situations where we have to demonstrate our faith. Not just practice it, demonstrate it. Sometimes I think we've been playing this, some of us have been playing this Christian game so long that we think practice is the game. That we think this, what we're doing this morning, is me showing my devotion to Christ. And I'm, we got to do this. This is part of it. But this is the practice of it. We actually, the, the actual demonstration of it is when we go out, when we go into the culture, when we put ourselves in difficult situations. Uh, I, I've grown up, most of you know, I've grown up uh, in church most of my life. I served in churches in the southeast for a large portion of my life. And one of the things that's popular to do, and we host a lot of these, is teams that will go on mission trips. Like they will take a trip. We've done a mission trip as a church. They're a beautiful thing to do. They open our eyes. But sometimes I've I've even seen churches be willing to take a mission trip to a place that is almost devoid of the gospel. They'll go to the Middle East. They'll go to somewhere in Africa where there's very little influence of the gospel. And they will try to be a bold witness there. But when they come home, they won't talk to their neighbor or talk to somebody from that ethnic background that lives down the street from them. They will do it in practice, but in permanence. It doesn't become part of their life. And this is what Jesus is pointing out here. Let's, let's have these moments of practice, but let's also demonstrate. Let's talk. Let's talk with one another. Let's have these debates, but let's actually go and do. And that's what it means to live audaciously, to not just stand up for what we think is right, but to push back on the cultural, social, and political practices that are anti-gospel. This is what Jesus begins to do in chapter 3. And he's going to give us an example. So let's jump into that. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, again, Mark 3. If you're not familiar with that, most of the scripture will be on uh, the screen behind me as well. And the first snapshot we're going to look at, this first demonstration, is another healing uh, that we see Jesus doing. And it's this healing moment that Jesus is going to use to make a bold demonstration of how he's going to approach things differently. We're not sure how much time passed between chapter 2 and 3. It had to be at least a week because it was a different Sabbath. It was probably more a few months, maybe weeks or months, because the word about Jesus had really gotten out. We're going to see that showing up. But let's jump into 3, and uh, we'll read verses 1 through 6. And it says this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand or a paralyzed hand. 
And they watched Jesus talking about the Pharisees to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, those looking around, is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Now, let me stop right there for just a second, because what he has just said here is very important. They, the rule for the Sabbath was you couldn't do a certain amount of work. You couldn't really do work. You had to rest. You couldn't do, but you could break that if you saw somebody in danger. If somebody was in danger and they needed your help, you could go do that. So this guy walks in to the synagogue with a withered hand, with a paralyzed hand. And uh, Jesus is making a point here. He's like, is it just whether the guy is like about to die? Or if I could just help somebody on the Sabbath, is that permissible? And he's really pushing back on, let's just try to figure out every rule that we have to follow in every situation and talk about the broader principles. And, th- and he said, after he said that, they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him of how to destroy him. I mean, this guy, take this in for a minute. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is not the religious leaders observing him doing something in the past. Like in the last chapter, they said, hey, we saw you out picking grain, you and your disciples, as you were wandering through the fields. Like, we don't think you should do that on the Sabbath. They're not observing and debating here. They're actually, Jesus is in the middle of the Sabbath. They're in the middle of a synagogue, in the middle of a service, and Jesus basically takes over. He's like, I'm not just, you're not just going to observe me do something. I'm going to intentionally do something to prove a point. Sometimes, God calls us not to just wait on a moment to happen. Sometimes God calls us to create a moment. And that's what Jesus did here. In the right time and in the right moment, he made a point. Maybe he was sitting there to the Pharisees, listening to them drone on and on about the things they were supposed to do or not do on the Sabbath. Maybe he was tired of hearing about religious practices instead of coming together to celebrate the one true God who had faithfully demonstrated love to all mankind through the ages. Maybe he was tired of seeing opportunities for compassion passed over time and time again when no one doing anything about it. And he said, I'm finally going to do it. And here's what he does. He's standing in front of this audience. The audience that he's in front of there are these self-righteous leaders with spiritual authority. This audience are people, they think they've got it all figured out. They're gathered in the synagogue that day, many of them just out of obligation instead of a desire to worship And they were following rules that were given to them, something to brag about instead of having an attitude of surrender. It was about them coming and showing off on the Sunday at the synagogue. Them saying, look at how special I am. And Jesus in this moment pushes back hard on this. Because all they were doing was being religious. Can I tell you something? Religion, when it becomes primarily about following rules or isolating myself from others, not like me, trying to prove our worth to God by our ability to adhere to his laws or even a perversion of God's laws that man has made, always turns into this. It always turns into self-righteousness. We start doing things that don't make sense, and we start acting like we more than we are. Can I, say, I, I, grew, I loved playing basketball growing up. It was, I was all right at it. I wasn't great. But I had NBA level talent when I would play on an eight-foot goal against prepubescent teenagers. 
right? I mean, I was amazing. I'd just be like, I could stand at the goal, be like, give it to me. And I was unstoppable, unstoppable. I was pretty self-righteous about my ability until like some guy, you know, my age shows up who had just been decent at basketball and he would put me in my place. Like we, we do that sometimes that we create this self-righteous thing where we're patting ourselves on the back and we're not even playing the game. We're just excited. I'm telling God how good I am and letting other people know how good I am because of what I, that the environment I've created is easy for me. And this is what the spiritual leaders have done. They've created these easy environment. And look how this scene plays out. It is like truly a true NBA player showed up in the midst of their little middle school eight-foot game and took over. They see this man with a withered, paralyzed hand, and instead of immediately asking if they can help or serve him, what do they do? They sit back and they start watching Jesus. Like, what's he going to do? Not whether he's going to heal this guy or not, but can we get something on him if he does something here? By healing this man, by working on the Sabbath. This is utter ridiculousness. It is ridiculous as me thinking I'm a great basketball player because I've created a court where I can always win. That's what they had done. And so they sit back and watch Jesus. And this is why he says he looks around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. A man in need walk into the midst of God's people and instead of showing concern, they use him as a pawn for their spiritual power play. It's ridiculous. So what does Jesus do as task? His task is at that moment to push back on the ungodly religious norms that had taken over. This is where Jesus steps up and doesn't just debate the issue, but he acts. Where it says earlier on, when he told the man to come here, the, the literally come here, when it says come to the center is what that means. The way the Jewish God was set up, there were benches around the outside and whoever was teaching or preaching at that moment would stand in the center. And Jesus basically walked into the middle and he took over the service. He's like, you know, won't you guys sit down for a minute? Why don't you come join me here? I mean, I don't know how that would work today. Like in our church, I've, I've served at a church. We used to be on live TV. And uh, a guy would one time try to come onto the stage. And like he got tackled by three people. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. I, I've served at a church where there literally is an armed guard off to the side of the uh, stage. And I'm like, it made me a little uncomfortable and uh, scared. But I don't know how this would happen today. But in that moment, Jesus just took over the service. And he told the man to come here front and center. And before he actually healed his hand, he asked them a question that basically says, you know what? The God that we worship would never create rules for us that would disallow us from showing compassion to people in need, especially those in our midst. That's not our God. And if you are living by that, you are not worshiping the God. And he was pushing back on these ungodly religious norms that were blocking the flow of God's grace, hope, and love instead of stemming, instead of allowing it to stream freely. Let me ask you the same question today. Why is it that we feel like that we sometimes get to put conditions on the expression of love and compassion of Christ even when Jesus doesn't do it himself? Why do we look at some people and go like, you're just not deserving of grace? You're not deserving of forgiveness. Even when God brings them into our midst as the body of Christ operating together, and we feel like we have the right to put conditions. Or do we think we are better determining who's worthy of receiving God's grace? Or why do we make rules that separate us from people instead of removing barriers and rushing to bring help and healing? 
we've got to be careful not to become self-righteous as well. How did Jesus do that? Through a simple demonstration. He was fearless in exposing manipulative and self-serving religious practice. You know what would have been easier to do that day? Is to just walk out. Be like, I don't want to be a part of this. This is a bunch of hypocrites. These are a bunch of self-righteous people. I'm out. I'm just going to go. No. It might have been easier for Jesus, but the thing that was most powerful, the most impactful culturally, is that he was fearless in exposing manipulative and self righteous religious practices so what does he do he brings a hand guy with his paralyzed hand into the center of the synagogue on the sabbath and in a spoken word heals his hand sets him free he helps him and it makes them so angry what do they do they get up and leave jesus didn't leave they got up and leave and like i don't know if this is what we want to be a part of and jesus is probably like great head on out and then they Go meet with people and try to figure out how to destroy him. Let me ask you a question. How often do we only serve or show compassion when we get something in return? You know, Jesus didn't heal this guy or say to the guy like, hey, why don't you come back tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath so I wouldn't get in trouble with these guys and uh, I'll heal you on that day. Or he didn't say, if I heal your hand, like, can you help us with building projects around the church now? Would you be willing to do that? I mean, he, he didn't put any stipulation on the guy. He just healed the guy. He didn't expect anything in return. And we talk about this a lot as a church because I do not want us as a church to fall trap to this. I do not want us to become a religious institution instead of an instrument of God's grace. Because that's what we're called to be. And I want us as a church and as a people to be fearless in exposing manipulative and self-serving religious practices. There's a second snapshot here that we look at at verse 7 that we see when Jesus is actually leaving the synagogue and he was trying to go on to another town, but it just didn't happen. And and you'll see why in verse 7. It says, Jesus then withdrew with his disciples down to the sea. They were heading down to the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed. They came from Galilee and Judea. In Jerusalem and Dumia, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples, have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. And those first few verses, what I want you to see is these people were coming from all over the region. They were as much as, as far as 200 miles away, walking distance bringing sick, bringing people that were paralyzed, bringing people to Jesus. This wasn't just a a small community gathering now. There were people coming. The places that he mentioned there were north, south, east, and west. They were coming from everywhere. They They were descending upon where Jesus was. His audience here was made of people who were culturally marginalized but had a passion for something to change in their life. These were people that were willing to travel miles, put themselves in extreme hardship to get to somewhere where they might could find some hope. If they could just get to Jesus. And this didn't just put him in front of religious leaders. It was putting him in front of these marginalized people who many times people tried to stay away from. The people that would have been said, hey, hey, you know, Jesus is kind of local celebrity now. Like, let's keep some of these away. Let's keep some of these people away. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus had every opportunity to run for cover, to create some kind of separation between him and the hurting, but he chose the opposite. Instead of choosing his newfound fame to create some kind of wall of separation, he actually stayed among those that needed him the most. 
in that verse where he talks about the boat. Like he actually could have said, hey, disciples, get the boat so that we can make a mad dash out of here. But he was actually saying, get a boat into the water. So if so many people crush us into the water, we'll at least have a place that we can go to that we can still stay close to them. He wasn't running from them. He was trying a way to stay close by them. What was he doing? He was pushing back. His task was to push back on these unnecessary social norms. The more we read about Jesus and the more we watch what he does, he actually tends to spend more time with those that for the most part our society has left behind, or at least we try to act like don't exist. Jesus, I want you to hear this. Jesus never stopped doing the dirty work. He never stopped. This isn't a rags to riches story where one day, you know, I used to have to do this and do that, but now I not doing this anymore. I'm, it's not a rags to riches story. It's a, it's a man who became famous, become well-known, but he stayed in rags, and he stayed around those that were in rags. It wasn't him trying to separate, do something to eventually separate himself from somebody else. He was pushing back on these norms. He never stopped doing the dirty work. Jesus wasn't about separating the classes or creating distinctions, whether that was based off of race, gender, religious background, socioeconomic factors. The gospel is not something that separates us. It's something that should connect us with all people. Never should be something to separate us. Imagine this. What did, how did he do this, this demonstration? It was through this steadfast concept that he would have personal expressions of service and humility. He was steadfast in it. He never stopped thinking, how do I serve? How do I stay humble? Just think about how, like, I don't, I'm, I'm a hugger. I don't mind hugging people and things like that. I enjoy physical touch. But I, I don't know what it would feel like to have thousands of people following me around all day trying to touch me. I mean, that doesn't sound like a good thing. And this is what's happening to Jesus. The crowds are descending and says they are pressing into him with nothing else but just to touch him. They don't even maybe want to talk to him. And we're going to see in a couple chapters the power of someone just touching Jesus. And, and they were surrounding. I have, I have a really good friend that I grew up with who I, when I see him, I don't see him that often, but when I see him now, I am purposefully give him a hug because I think I'm probably the only one that touches him over the year. Like, he is not a physical touch person at all. Like, he just, I can tell when I'm hugging, he's like this. He's like, please stop, please stop. And, uh, like, I just bear hug as much as I can. He's smaller than me, so sometimes I lift him up and play with him like that. And, uh, and he just gets, you know, he hates it. But Jesus in the, is in the midst of this, and he's not saying, get me out. He's actually saying, help me find a way to stay in. He didn't put a limit on who or how many that he would minister to. Can I tell you, sometimes we get caught up in this idea that, you know, this week I've done enough ministry. I've done enough for Jesus. This week, now I need some, some me time. I need some, some time to detach away. And I want to say, you can find examples in Scripture of when Jesus did go and pray, did go with family and friends and, and detached and had moments of that together. But what I see in Jesus' life and what I've seen in my life is this. One of the ways I am most energized, that I'm most filled, that I'm most rejuvenated is when I'm serving in the ministry of the gospel. When I'm seeing healing poured into people's lives. When I'm seeing hope open up in people's hearts. Most of you know my wife, Katie. She works in our children's area upstairs. And I've had a number of you are like, you know, I wish we could do something to get, let Katie get down here more often. And I, I love that too. I 
love to have her down here. I love seeing her. But can I tell you, she, she would tell you no. Because working in our children's area on Sunday mornings is what rejuvenates our soul. Getting to serve, getting to, it's not something she really ever wants a break from. When she takes a break from it, she misses it. She longs for it. And this is what the example Jesus is showing here. When we are serving out of our gifts and out of our passion, not just out of task and obligation, feeling like we've got to do something, when we are doing it out of passion, and we're seeing the gospel and the hope of the gospel be manifest in people's lives, it is rejuvenating. It's not something I ever want to stop seeing. It's not something I ever want to stop being a part of. And this is what he's demonstrating, a steadfast ability to continue as an expression of grace, service, and humility. Third snapshot we'll close with is this, and it's a tough one. We're going to jump down to verse 20, and it's, uh, it's probably the most difficult one we see here because it's actually Jesus and his family, this family almost disagreement that happens. We're going to read verse 20 and 21 and then jump down to 31. And it says this in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again. Like he can't get away. And so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. And they were saying he is out of his mind. Right? He's, this is his own family saying this about Jesus. And then verse 31, it says, And then his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they went to him and called him. And the crowd sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. Now, this is a tough passage to read, especially for those of us who, one, don't like confrontation, and secondly, who especially don't like disagreements within our family or within our closest friends. Like, we're just getting on edge. Some of us are already like, Oh, that, that doesn't seem... Like, why did they put that in there? Like, let's just leave that part out. It just seems a little, like, too much conflict. But I want you to understand, we will all at times face an audience of emotionally charged, intimate relationships where we have to choose what we're going to do in those. Imagine for a moment if your brother, sister, whatever, had moved away and was now leading some kind of religious rebellion a few towns away and was claiming to have the power to heal people of all sickness, I mean, you grew up with them. The guy never reached over and healed your cold or made your acne go away as a teenager, right? He's like, why, why didn't you show this as, a, as my brother? And then I can imagine that they might have thought he was crazy. But this moment brings to light an incredible issue that we all deal with. How do we handle it when those closest to us, our family and friends, don't understand why we are doing what we're doing? How do we handle that? Well, why are we questioning, why are they come to and say, why are you questioning the religious establishment? Why are you spending so much time with those people? Why don't you just come home? Do you notice in the passage it said they stayed outside? They didn't go in, sit beside Jesus, say, we want to be a part of this. It said they actually came out and they stayed outside and sent word in to Jesus. I can't tell you that means that they didn't want to go in. Maybe they just couldn't get in, but they certainly didn't attempt to try to get in. They stayed outside. I want to say something this morning. I am extremely grateful for my parents and my family and their support of us when we decided to move to New York City. Never once did I hear from my family, you know, you shouldn't do this or let's just do something easier. And they would ask questions and things like that. But from day one, there was a 100% support. 
But even through this journey, there have been moments with my closest family where they have questions like, why are you doing it that way? What, what is this? And we've had moments, we've had arguments that have been difficult and we've had to struggle through them. And I, I remember one time, it was about a year and a half ago, I was down speaking at a church in Georgia, sharing about who we are and how we approach things. And afterwards, my dad and I were talking and he came up to me and this was just one of those key moments in my life and my ministry. And he said, Patrick, after hearing that again, he said, I get it. I finally get it. I understand what you're doing. Some things that we weren't on the same track, like all of a sudden we were, he's like, I'm not saying I'd do it that way, but I understand why you're doing it that way. I'm grateful for that, but I know there are people in this room and there are people all around that I know that that's not the case. You're doing something, even being a Christian drives a wedge between you and your family. What do you do? How do you handle that? Because there are times we feel pressure to walk in a certain pathway because of family history. Doing something unique, different, or something that no one in your group has ever done before add pressure and misunderstanding. And Jesus is setting an example here of not allowing expectations or even a lack of understanding from those closest to him to deter him from his calling and purpose to make the kingdom of God near to everyone. And here's the deal. Here's what he was. He was dauntless in his commitment to the mission of bringing the kingdom of God near. Even if it had impact on his closest relationships around him. Jesus knew that his family was basically coming to collect him and take him home. Like, all right, we'll, we'll get this taken care of. Put an end to this nonsense. But if instead of allowing that voice to remain the primary voice in his life, Jesus found a group of people that understood and embraced his passion and calling. Can I tell you what Jesus didn't do? Jesus did not, he did not lower the value of his family. He didn't say, your words don't mean anything to me anymore. You're not even, I'm not your family anymore. What he did was he elevated the position and value of those that he was doing ministry with. He didn't devalue. He elevated. And he said, there are, well, I am physically your mother, your son, or your brother, or your sister. I am also now part of a spiritual family. And I have brothers and sisters within this family that are just as passionate and important to me as well. Katie and I love our physical families, and we stay close to them. But I want to be very honest. God has given us the spiritual brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and grandparents here in this city that we are loved and passionate about as well. People that we know we can reach out to in a moment's notice, people that are passionate about the things that we're walking the city with on a daily basis, we have those because God has given us a spiritual family, a family here, and you can find family here as well. For some of us, the hardest choice to make, this is the hardest choice to make, choosing to follow God, even when you're most, emotion, those emotion, most emotionally attached to you don't understand, or they even disagree with you. And I want you to hear something this morning. The, the beauty of the gospel is that even in that struggle, even in that pain, Jesus is going to bring kin, people with kindred, kindred spirits alongside of you, other people who will help develop a connection that's as strong as any blood connection we have. So my question for the day is this. Where is Jesus and his teachings pushing back on the norms of your life? Not where is he just causing you to stand up, but where is he pushing back on the norms of your life? What's causing you to, to reveal that wasn't there before? Not just having moments of introspection, but how we move into moments of demonstration. Not just being willing to stand up, but to step forward. 
What do you do when following God puts us at odds with those in established authority, whether it's religious, political, whatever? What do we do when the task of loving and showing compassion to people seems overwhelming and nonstop? What do we do when our family and those closest to us disagree or distance themselves from us because of how we're living out our faith? What do we do when our faith simply creates moments of tension where we know we need to act, but it isn't easy? We can follow the example of Christ and turn those moments not into a crisis of faith, but into a demonstration of faith. We can allow him to expose the beauty that is hidden under the tarnish of religious, societal, and relational norms and allow us to shine like he designed us to be. Let's pray together. God, I am so grateful that your word speaks to difficult circumstances. God, all of us have been here, have been in times where we feel like we've got to stand up against authority or that the task is too much or even those closest to us don't understand us. God, help us to see those as not moments of trial and tribulation, but actually moments where you're removing the tarnish of the social norms that maybe have been placed on us and giving us the ability to reveal the gospel in a fresh and beautiful way. God, may we live audacious lives like you did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.